But where I'd like to start, if I may, is I would like to read to you a newspaper editorial that I read in one of the biggest selling and circulating newspapers in the United Kingdom a little while ago. And every so often, you know, when you're reading the national press, you, you read something that really makes you sit up and pay attention and you find yourself focusing in a whole, whole new way. Um, but this is what was uh, published in the newspaper that day in the editorial column. It said, what we're witnessing throughout the West right now is the new politics of anger. There is anger at the spread of unemployment, leaving whole regions and generations bereft of hope. There is anger at financiers who, are brought, who brought the global economy to the brink of disaster and yet continue to reward themselves as though nothing had happened. There's anger at CEOs using public corporations for private benefit. There's anger that while a few have benefited disproportionately from the global economy, most people have seen their standards of living stay stagnant or decline. There is anger at the perceived impotence of governments to control the spread of extremism and terror. There is a widespread feeling that the world of the 21st century is running out of control. And this has led to a resurgence of the far right and the far left. These are dangerous sources. The far right seeking a return to a golden age that never was. The far left in pursuit of a utopia that will never be. They are both enemies of freedom. The problems facing the West are real and serious. The results of massive dislocations for the global economy, the information age, instantaneous worldwide communication, the outsourcing of production and services to low-wage economies. And what makes them so intractable is the fact that they are global and long-term, while the very best of our politics at the moment is national and focused on the immediate future. But there's something deeper behind the dysfunctional politics of the contemporary West. For the past half a century, we've been living through one of the great unstated social experiments of all time. We've tried to construct, a, construct a world without identity and without morality. Instead, we left it to two systems to deal with the problems of our collective life, the market economy and the liberal democratic state. Morality's been outsourced to the market, and the market gives us choices, and morality's been reduced to a set of choices in which right or wrong have no meaning beyond the, beyond the satisfaction or frustration of our own desires. We find it increasingly hard to understand why. There might be things we want to do and can afford to do, but that we shouldn't do because they're dishonorable or disloyal or demeaning. In a word, unethical. Too many people in positions of public trust have come to the conclusion that if you can get away with it, you would be mad not to do it. And this is how elites betray the public they were supposed to serve. And when that happens, trust collapses and a civilization begins to decay and then die. Meanwhile, the liberal democratic state has abolished national identity in favor of multiculturalism, and the effect is to turn society from a home into a hotel. In a hotel, you pay the price, you get a room, and you're free to do whatever you want, as long as you don't disturb the other guests. But a hotel is not a home. It doesn't generate identity or a sense of belonging. The market economy and the liberal democratic state are two of the West's greatest achievements, but without a strong sense of identity and morality, they will fail. To turn this crisis into opportunity, we must now recover the great central intrite of our great religious institutions and civic traditions that we have no society without shared ideals. Isn't that incredible? I think he taps into something there which is really very profound and incredibly important because we are genuinely struggling right now and we find ourselves struggling at all kinds of levels. A couple of years ago, I was invited to speak in London when they were laying a memorial stone for C.S. Lewis in Westminster Abbey. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with that great church in London, but it celebrates poets and writers and philosophers that have made a huge impact, um, not just simply in the nation of the United Kingdom, but right across the world. And because it was coming up for this centenary celebration for C.S. Lewis, they wanted to put a stone in the floor. Now, what was really quite funny is if you ever go to the Abbey, you'll notice that some of those stones, because they've been in the floor now for hundreds and hundreds of years, have been worn smooth. So many people have touched them or walked over them that it begins to 
to uh, erase the engraving on the actual stone. And so they had decided that the stone for C.S. Lewis, so many people would come and touch it, they would make, they'll put it of a particularly hard type of stone. The irony was that it took the engraver far longer to engrave the stone because the stone was so hard than he had anticipated. And so just before we had this memorial service with all the great and the good of London and people who'd flown in from around the world to be part of this, this ceremony in London, um, the um, bishop took one of us, a few of us aside who were speaking and a part of the events that weekend, and he says, whatever you do, he says, everybody else is going to walk past the stone at a distance, but you'll be allowed to walk straight up to it, but don't touch it, because it looks engraved, but they simply use chalk of four different colors you know, to create a shading effect, so when you look at it, it looks like it's been, the words have been cut in, but actually, they haven't. He says, so if you touch it, the illusion will be destroyed. And I, I just thought... Um, there was just a sense of irony with all of that as it was going through, but uh, when I was coming down to London, there was a, a retired army general in the British Army who had, we'd met a couple of times, and he said, is there any way you'll take me, uh, he said, is there any way you'll have lunch with me if I take you to my club? And um, he's a member, I think, of some um, famous club in London, uh, connected with the military, and I thought, wow, this is an opportunity I won't pass up. And I went out to lunch to only to discover, as my boss Ravi Zacharias often says, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And over lunch for two and a half hours, he grilled me with all kinds of questions. And at the end of two and a half hours, I said to him, General, I'm wondering if I might ask you a question. I said, you know, when I was growing up at the age of 15, I thought I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to do a law degree, which I did, and then I was going to become a rich lawyer and do all kinds of stuff you know, connected with that. And, you know, I wasn't a Christian at the time, but I had some very clear ideas of what I wanted, and I was committed to achieving them. I said, well, forget about being 15, forget about being 25. He said, I now meet 35-year-olds and they're not committed to anything. They're just simply drifting through life, trying one thing for another. They're normally in most positions and jobs from 18 to 24 months and then they drift into something else. I said, my question to you is if that's where the culture is, how on earth do you breed leadership in the absence of commitment? And the guy sort of sat back in his chair and he sighed and he said, you know what? He says, you may not know this, he says, but for the past few years I've been in charge of officer selection and training for the British Armed Services and this is our number one problem. He says, you can't breed leadership in the absence of commitment. He says, and we now have a serious problem in terms of just some of the quality of the people that we're looking for. Well, a couple of hours later, I was still hanging around in London because um, uh, I was then getting ready to, um, this was all happening on a Saturday, all this services and stuff um, with, the, with the stone, and then the next morning I was preaching in this church that often has me, you know, has me do seven different sermons on a Sunday. And so my, my family were coming down, we're gonna spend the night in London overnight, and then they were gonna come along to the church with me in the morning. And I had a few hours to kill um, now as I was waiting for my family to come down and I was in a small uh, department store buying a few things to eat for you know, when the family came down. And um, I got talking to the guy next to me and I could recognize the accent, he was American. And uh, whenever I meet Americans in London, I always A, want to make them feel welcome and B, press upon them the importance of why it would be a good idea to rejoin the British Empire. And <laughs> as uh, I got talking to him, I said, I, I see you're from the States. He said, yes. I said, where are you from? He said, I'm from LA. And I said, what are you doing here? And he said, well, actually, he said, my, my wife and I are here for a vacation. She loves the theatre. He said, I can't stand it. He said, so she's watching a play, a matinee performance. I'm waiting for it to finish, and then we're going out for dinner tonight. And I said to him, well, what do you do? And he said, well, I'm retired now, but I used to help run the LAPD. And I smiled, and I said, I know exactly what you do, because I've watched all the movies. <laughs> and uh, he responded in exactly the same way you did uh, just now. And he, he, he said to me... Um, uh, he just laughed and then I, I, we, I, I said, well, I'm waiting for my family to come down too. And we ended up finding a couple of chairs together in the store we were in and we just sat and talked. And then after about half an hour, I said to him, may I ask you a question? He said, sure. I said, I've just been having lunch with this general. I told him the story. I said, I'd like to ask you the same question. 
How do you breed leadership in the absence of commitment? And now he sat back in his chair. He said, you may not know this, he says, but I was in charge of officer selection training for the LAPD for the last five years before I retired. He said, we've spent millions of dollars flying in motivational speakers, analysts, all kinds of people to analyze that problem for us. And it's a serious issue. He says, you have a serious problem when the rank and file don't respect the people above them because they don't see a degree of commitment in their life. He says, and I'm not sure whether we've really cracked it either. And this raises a really very interesting question. Because in our culture right now, we're increasingly moving into a culture of convenience where everything is about us. We live in an incredibly narcissistic time where you all have become the main actor of the play of life. And the trouble is when everybody thinks that way, I'm the main actor in my story, you become the supporting cast. And as soon as I begin thinking that way, then all of a sudden, if you then do anything that stands in my way, I, you then become a problem for me in my story. So I now need to think of a way to marginalize you or overcome you in some kind of way. But the trouble is, is when everybody begins thinking that way, all of society begins to fall apart because no one's committed to anything apart from themselves. Now, in the past, we would try to inspire people into a sense of shared commitment and mutuality by telling them a greater and bigger story. And we'd very often do that with appeals to culture. As a matter of fact, there's a literary theorist I'm reading right now who's making the argument that when we killed off God in the 1960s, and this is one of England's most famous professors of English literature and the theory of literature, and one of England's probably most well-known Marxist thinkers as well, he's a, he's a communist, um, but Professor Eagleton said, you know, when we killed God, we thought we could replace him with culture. And ever since the 1960s, whenever we see divisions in our culture, in, in our society, we make an appeal to culture to bring everybody together, to try to paper over the cracks. He says, and culture very broadly is all about language and symbol and meaning and what all of those things stand for. He says, but all of those cultural thing, questions we have, you know, the appeal to identity, the appeal to language, the appeal to symbol and so on, he says, those things have now all become very politically contentious. And so now the language of culture isn't a way to unify a group of people, it's the, it's the, it's the weapon we use to frame our dissent. He says, and therefore all of a sudden culture now is the means by which leads us to war rather than bring us together as a people. And so now we found that actually culture is a totally inadequate replacement for God and we're stuck. And I think there's an awful lot of insight in what he happen, happens to say. Now when we used to analyze cultures in the past, typically we'd talk about honor cultures and we'd contrast them with dignity-based cultures. Now, honor-based cultures split into a variety of streams. I'm not going to go into all of that now. It's not necessary, but broadly speaking, in honor-based cultures, it means if you insult me, my primary question is I need to respond to you with honor. And so the way I respond to critique and difficulty is with a paradigm of honor. How do I respond honorably? How do I treat and deal with you honorably? And I need to defend my honor, and I would normally have to do that publicly. And we would contrast that with dignity-based cultures, where in a dignity-based culture, you don't need to earn respect from other people by acting honorably. You expect respect simply because of who you are. That make sense? And instead of responding publicly to an attack, you very often respond privately. So rather than publicly responding to someone coming against you in a dignity-based culture, you very quietly normally go to them, take them aside, and resolve the issue there. And if you can do that, that's seen as a dignified response. That's seen as a dignified way of handling that split. And when we've looked in the West, especially in this country, especially in the United Kingdom, which is so heavily influenced by Judeo-Christian ethic, you normally see a blend of honor and dignity coming together. It's what we expect to see in our leadership, and it's what we hope that we'll actually see demonstrated. But there's been a collapse of these things in the last couple of years, and increasingly we're now living in a time which sociologists identify using a term from psychology of victim-based culture. And victim-based cultures are very different. 
In a victim-based culture, if, so, if you come against me, I don't think in terms of how do I respond with honor, how do I respond with dignity. In a victim-based culture, the narrative in my head is actually very different. The narrative is everything I do is only motivated by love, but anything you do if you disagree with me is only explicable through hate. So all forms of disagreement therefore become equated with hatred. So as soon as you disagree with someone, it means that you're attacking them, and therefore you're guilty of some kind of hate crime. And now this particular narrative is spinning out of control, and it's leading for all kinds of negative repercussion in our society. It means then that if you're running for political office, for example, what you do is you calculate the number of victim groups in your society. And what you do as a leader is you advocate their complaint more militantly and more vociferously than them. And if you do that and you do it well, you'll be co-opted into the group, and they will now see you as one of them. And when you motivate people through their anger and disappointment, it's very, very powerful, and they'll get behind you and they'll support you. And if you get the maths right, you'll win every single time. And this isn't anything to do with right versus left or anything like that. You see this narrative playing out in every country in Europe, every country I've visited in Africa, right across the Middle East and all across Asia. Just think through any kind of political dispute you're familiar with here in your great state of California. Of course, you probably don't have any political disputes here in California because you all love each other. I was promised sunshine, by the way, when I came here. I was looking for it. I left England cold and gray. I arrived to the cold and gray. So I'm feeling victimized right now. But here's the key thing. As soon as you buy into this mentality of thinking that you're a victim, you fall into some very, very unhealthy patterns. Because all of a sudden, it's not just the fact that you're now struggling with your historical grievances. You interpret all future action through that lens. And so long as you're willing to hold on to that victimhood, you, you have a huge problem in your life. One commentator said, we are currently locked into a vortex of competitive victimhood, where we're all trying to outcompete our victim narratives, all trying to get status through the way we're seen, and you see it everywhere. It's utterly tragic. I don't know if any of you have seen the original Superman movie that was released in the 1980s with Christopher Reeves. But if you've seen that movie, ask yourself one question. What were Superman's weaknesses? Apart from kryptonite, where did he fail? And the answer is nowhere. Morally, perfect. Rationally, perfect. Emotionally, perfect. Physically, perfect. Just like me in so many ways. That's why <laughs> I, I liked thinking about him. But if you see the 2017 millennial remake for the iGen, so-called iGen generation, how does Man of Steel start in 2017? Well, Superman is now, the movie starts with Superman on a boat. He's in a thick fog and he's lost. He feels culturally lonely, cosmically abandoned, separated from his parents, separated from those around him. No one can understand who he is. He's wrestling with his identity. He's wrestling with his purpose. He can't deal with the weight of expectation on his soldier's shoulders. All of a sudden, now Superman has a victim narrative. Because for Superman to be a superhero today, it's not that he acts with honor or dignity. He needs a victim narrative to command respect. That's why if you watch any Marvel superhero movie, and there have been an awful lot of them, every single Marvel superhero, all of them, have been used, abused, betrayed, hurt. All of them have a victim narrative. That's what makes them a superhero today. And so what we're suddenly doing is we're elevating that status. And, if you, and does it make sense to what you esteem? And therefore, everyone's looking for a victim narrative which they can claim, which is why we now live in a culture which loves to magnify its grievances. We love to hang on to so strongly all those things which have gone wrong and even exaggerate or lie about them if we feel, if it, because we feel it's justified to in order to gain other people's respect. Even the most boring superhero ever invented, Captain America. After his first movie, in order to make the sequel work, 
What happens in the sequel with Captain America? How does the movie start? He's betrayed by his friends, betrayed by his country. He's lost the love of his life. He can't form a relationship. People don't understand who he is. He needs a victim narrative to be a superhero today. He can't be honest and good and true. That simply isn't enough. That's not what we're looking for. And this narrative has now become all-encompassing. Now, the incredible thing is, is that when you look at the life of Jesus Christ and the kinds of things that he said and did, you see something very, very different at work. It's in a completely different story and it's a totally different narrative. If you, um, you're probably familiar with these words out of the Gospel of John in chapter 10. Um, if you live in a city like I do, Oxford, which is sort of very academically driven, and you ask sort of, you know, the academic theological community what they make of this passage, they'll basically say that this is a series of random sayings that were sort of like on little cuttings on the floor. And someone came along with a dustpan and brush and swept them all up and then like copied them all out one after another and it's one big jumbled mess. But it's not a big jumbled mess at all. Let me just read to you what these well-known words and we'll have a brief look and see what they mean and how this speaks to us today. Jesus said, I tell you, you Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in through some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought them out, out all of his own, he goes on ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate, and whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and he runs away. The wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen, and I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to pick it up, and this is the command I've received from my Father. Those who heard this, these words were again divided. Many of them said, he's demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is very fascinating. You can see where the criticism comes. Does that make sense? So, so sort of jumbled up sayings. Jesus, first of all, says, you know, I'm, you know, he talks about being the, shepherd, the guy who opens the gate. He's the gatekeeper, and then he's the gate, and then he's the shepherd, and then he's, you know, it makes sense. And so you, that's why some people say this is confused. You need to understand the setting in which Jesus is talking here. The sheep are trained to hear the shepherd's voice in the Middle East. I can remember the first time I, my wife came over to meet my family when we got engaged. This is before we were married. And so um, she came over um, to where I was living at that time um, and she had to meet all of my crazy extended family. Um, otherwise, up until that point, technically speaking in that culture, we weren't really engaged. Um, and so this was sort of like an official, I felt like an engagement party, it's a very big deal. And while we were there, I took her up into the mountains, and while we were up in the mountains, um, the, um, this uh, shepherd came, and um, on the, we were in one valley, and he was on the other valley, and you could see he came, and he had goats and sheep. Now my, my wife's family, uh, grand family, they had cattle, they looked after cows. 
And the first thing my wife said to me was when she saw the shepherd come, she looked at the sheep and the, shep- and the goats, and she said there were no markings on the sheep and the goats. And I said, I want you to watch this. And so we went and got something to, to eat, and we sat down under an olive tree in the shade because it was hot. And 15 minutes later, a second shepherd appeared with his sheep and goats, also with no markings on. And then the two herds intermingled. And my wife said, how are they going to separate them? She's, I know what she's thinking, these crazy Greeks, what on earth are they doing? And now a third shepherd arrived. So now you've got three shepherds and three different flocks and they're all mixed up together. And Anne said, this is mayhem. Well, what, 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 how do they figure out, what do they do? And I said, just, you need to give it long. You need to give it a while because in, 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 in that culture, a short lunch is about two and a half hours and the shepherds are now having lunch. So after two and a half hours or so, you know, one of the shepherds gets up and he walks about 100 yards away from the sheep and he gives a little call with his voice and all of a sudden it was like one third of the sheep and goats had been electrified. I mean, literally, they jumped up in the air, they all looked around, they found the shepherd and they ran to him and at high speed. And as soon as they got near him, they all slowed down and the shepherd slowly walked and all the sheep slowly walked behind him. The sheep know the shepherd's voice. That's what they respond to. But then Jesus then goes on to say something very interesting. Because he says, I am the gate. What does he mean by that? Well, it's a very dry, difficult agricultural climate. Not that, again, that anyone in California would relate to that. And so you have a problem with water, which means as you graze the cattle, as you graze the sheep, you have to take them further and further away from the main cities, like Jerusalem and so on, up into the mountainous areas where it's cooler and there's food for the sheep to eat. The trouble is if you walk them all day to go and graze for a little bit and you walk them all back, you've got a huge problem. And so they would build these pens on the mountainsides going up and it would be, a hu- it would be almost a complete circle. It would come all the way down and there'd be a gap in the circle about this wide and the wall would be, I don't know, let's say, high enough to stop a wolf jumping over the top of it and you would have these very jagged rocks, very sharp rocks in the top of the wall all the way around the top. Does that make sense? So if you try to go over the wall, you get cut. And the shepherd at night, after the sheep had been grazing, he would herd them all into the sheep pen so they would be safe. Now there's only one vulnerability in that structure. Where is it? It's at the entrance. So guess where the shepherd slept? The shepherd slept across the entrance into that pen. That's what the good shepherd did. He was the gate and he protected the sheep. He was utterly committed to them. And if attack came, he didn't run away and hide because it's much easier to sacrifice a few sheep and live. There's only so much they can eat and carry off than it is to stand up and fight them off. But the good shepherd is the gate. He's the gate for the sheep. He puts himself in the most vulnerable place he possibly can because his concern is for the flock that's been entrusted to his care. And he will do anything he can to protect them and look after them. What drives a victim narrative in culture is a, very, is a form of narcissism. It's a, technically, it's like a form of narcissistic self-righteousness. You become very obsessed with yourself and you tend to see everything simply revolves around you. Whereas what Jesus Christ is talking here is the complete opposite of that. He's talking about the one who is willing to lay down their life in order to rescue the sheep. And as a matter of fact, as Jesus goes on to keep talking in John chapter 10, he says, I'm not laying my my life down by accident, by the way. He says, I have actually come into this world for that very reason. I haven't come into this world thinking I might have to lay down my life for the sheep. I've come into this world knowing I have to lay down my life for the sheep. 
And that's the third part of what he's talking about. He's saying, I need to effect a rescue for this particular flock from all the ills that is coming against them. But it's going to cost me my life. And then he says something very interesting. He says, no one takes my life from me. He says, when I go to the cross, no one's going to kill me. Have you ever thought about how you would kill God? It's even harder than killing Superman. With Superman, you need the correct amount of kryptonite. But how do you take away God's life? It's fascinating, isn't it? And Jesus says, no one's taking it from me. I'm telling you, I'm going to lay it down of my own accord. And I'll pay the price, and then I'll pick it up again. And he's talking again of his resurrection. He's willing to come and step into this world to pay the ultimate price for each one of us, to rescue us out of this world that's so bent on destruction. In a world where leadership seems to be collapsing, where we don't talk about sacrifice anymore, Jesus joyfully comes into a world. He joyfully gives up his life. He lays it down, and he pays a price in order to rescue you and I. He completely loves us. He brings us to him. You know, if you read Psalm 23, Ezekiel 34, Isaiah, you'll see that one of the most common images that God uses for himself is the good shepherd. In Psalm 23, David, King David, talks about, well, he talks about sheep. I don't know if you've noticed that. The Lord is my shepherd. God is what? A shepherd? I am a sheep. He leads me beside still waters. Why still waters? Well, sheep are covered in wool. Um, you probably know this better than the people who live in San Francisco. Many people who live in, sheep, uh, live in cities think sheep come wrapped up in plastic packets and are about this big. Uh, if you're in the countryside, you're aware of the fact that they're a bit bigger than that and they're covered in wool. Well, why is that a big deal? Well, that means if you want to drink and you're near raging water and you get wet, what happens to wool when it gets wet? Well, it gets heavy. So if you've got your feet in the stream and your head in the water and you're getting splashed and the front half of you becomes heavy, what happens to the sheep? You fall in. Now, they don't sink. They just sort of bloat up and their legs go stiff and they stick up in the sky and they die. But the good shepherd knows how to lead the sheep beside still water where they can drink in safety. He takes them to green pasture. And in his hand, he has a rod and a staff. The rod is a heavy, metal, heavy wooden piece of equipment with pieces of metal driven into it. It's pretty scary. The, the staff is a long, you cut off a branch off a tree and it's, you know, it's like a crook. You know, a long piece of wood with a, they cut off a thing and they'll shape it so it has a hook on the end. And it says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now I'd like you to think about that for a moment. Now, Reading seems like a fairly safe place, so let's move this, the situation down to the roughest suburb of one of the, the nearest big city. Okay. And I, I don't know where that would be where you're gonna find a really rough suburb in a big city near here. Maybe you do have it in Reading. But this, you know, I don't know where it is. Is that gonna be, we're going to Sacramento, we're going to San Francisco, how far do you need to go before you're gonna find a place like that? But let's suppose you're there and you're lost. And all of a sudden at 2 a.m. you're walking all alone down the middle of the street, it's dark, there are no lights. And as you're walking down you see this big hulking guy walking towards you and in one hand he has a rod, a heavy wooden club with pieces of metal sticking out of it and on the other hand, a big staff that's taller than him with a hook on the end. Do you look at those things and go, your rod and your staff, they comfort me? <laughs> that is not a comforting sight. 
So what on earth is the psalmist talking about? And the answer is very simple. Because when the shepherd passed under a lamppost and you can suddenly see his face, you realize he's one of your best friends. And now all of a sudden it's a very comforting sight. Because you're lost and you're in the middle of nowhere and this guy's come dressed for the party. He can take you more or less safety anywhere. And that's very comforting. And so there is the shepherd with the club to beat off attack and the staff with the hook on the end. So when the sheep do fall into the water, he can hook it around and pull them out to safety. And that's what the good shepherd does. He rescues the sheep. And indeed, he even lays down his life for the sheep. If you read Ezekiel 34, that passage of Bible, very carefully, you'll see God says something very interesting. That is a prophecy again about where God says, you are the sheep and I am your shepherd. And it's a whole allegory. It's, 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 it goes on and on and on and on. And in case you miss it, at the end of Ezekiel chapter 34, God says, look, you are my human sheep, the sheep of my pasture, and I am your shepherd, the God okay, of all. So just in case you didn't get the allegory, you know, that there's a shepherd, God, and there are sheep, people, at the end of chapter 34, God says, you are the human sheep, okay, and I, I am the good shepherd who comes to rescue you, just in case it passed you by. But here's the amazing thing. And it is incredible. In that chapter, there's a description of the sheep that God comes to rescue. And God says, the trouble with the sheep is that when there's food, they trample on each other to get the food first. And when they have eaten, they trample the rest of the food under their feet so that the sheep will come behind them. That's meant that what they have to eat has been spoiled. And when they go to drink, okay, they don't just simply drink. When they drink, they do stuff in the water which would make it not appetizing to drink for someone else. I'm trying to think of a delicate way to put this. Okay, you can probably imagine what he's talking about. In other words, these are really bad sheep. They fight each other, they destroy each other, they steal each other's food, and then they do stuff in the water to make it undrinkable for everybody else. In other words, God doesn't rescue these sheep because they're good sheep, he rescues these sheep because he's a good shepherd. The shepherd is willing to forgive the sheep. And he's gonna make them, he's gonna make them good because he's gonna rescue them. He does it, he says in Ezekiel 34, for his name's sake, he will rescue the sheep. Because he's concerned with his honor and with his dignity. And out of it, he comes to rescue us. And the effect is profound. It's, you cannot boast in the Christian faith because you are a recipient of this incredible, forgiving, salvific act from God. He comes into this world to rescue us. And it has a very profound impact. When... Um, I was, uh, uh, my um, travel assistant Jim and I were in northern Nigeria six months ago, and we'd been invited there by Archbishop Benjamin Kawashi, who is the Archbishop of Jos in northern Nigeria. Um, everyone who's in this room will have heard of that city because not very far from there, a few years ago, 274 girls were kidnapped by Boko Haram. And you may remember that. The tragedy is, is that thousands of girls were kidnapped before that, and thousands of girls have been kidnapped since, but we're so fickle in our media, most of us don't even think about it anymore. So that's where he lives. He's a very brave man, both he and his wife. They speak publicly out against corruption in that country all the time, and they've even challenged some corrupt parts of the church as well. So he's not always the most popular person in town. 
but he and his wife had the most enormous heart for people. He, he went away on an international trip about, I, can't remember, I think it was about 10 years ago, he came home and there were 12 children having lunch around his dinner table. And that wasn't at all unusual, they fed a lot of kids. But it was getting dark outside and he said to his wife, we should send these kids home because it's getting dark and the terrorists are out there, it's not safe. So they should go home when it's still light so they can get safe passage home. And she looked at Ben and she said, Ben, they are home. He said, what do you mean? He said, Ben, they were gonna die, they were gonna be killed, so I've adopted them. These are our children. Ben, after they put those kids to bed, I think they had one of those friendly conversations that marital couples have sometime when one person feels they haven't been properly consulted by the other. And if you've had an argument about an unexpected car purchase, I'm telling you, 12 children is a totally different deal. Well, a few months after that, he was invited to speak at another big international conference. It lasted for two weeks, and when he got home, there were now 36 children sat around his dinner table. He looked at his wife, Gloria. He said, Gloria, what have you done? She said, Ben, I, we had to adopt the kids. They had, they had nowhere to go. They, they were lost. And literally, they were in danger of being sacrificed. I won't go into the whole story. And he said, Ben, if I, if I didn't take them on, if they didn't come to our legal protection, they'd have nowhere to go. Well, by the time she'd adopted 62, Ben said, you know what, Gloria, we need to, you know, there's only so many we can adopt. And they have stopped adopting kids, but they've built a dormitory at the back of their house and they have another 500 they're currently looking after. They've had such an impact in the place where they live. Boko Haram broke into his house to try to kill Archbishop Ben a while ago. And he was meant to be at home. They had the correct intelligence, but his flight had been delayed in London and he couldn't get back. So he wasn't home. So they found his wife and they thought that his wife was covering up where he was hiding. So they beat her, raped her, and when she still refused to disclose the location, put a gun in her mouth and pulled the trigger. So when Ben arrived home the next day, he found his wife unconscious lying on the floor. So for three months she was in a coma. Now there are a few advantages when you're an archbishop in the Anglican Church, which is you get to know the Queen. And of course, when this was reported and she found out about it, the first thing she did is contacted Ben and asked how they could pray for her and then offered him and his family <coughs> asylum back in the UK. And so as Ben was by her bedside wondering, will she ever recover, when she finally came to and regained consciousness, in the very first conversation they had, Ben said to her, the Queen has been in touch and offered us asylum in the United Kingdom. And some of the very first words she spoke were, but Ben, if we leave, who will look after the children? Who will love the people here? We have to stay. And so they stayed, they're still there to this day. Because when you've experienced that forgiveness and that rescue from God, you, you can't help but want to extend it to other people. Even if it costs you your life. If the one who rescued you was prepared to lay down their, your, their life to rescue you, it inspires you to something so much bigger and greater. Because you're now motivated by a kind of love for them. Even if they want to kill you. You want to take that same love, that same peace, that same forgiveness to them. Because you know if they were to encounter it, it would change everything. I have a good friend in um, Pakistan. He's a wonderfully brave man. He, um, he wrote to me recently. We helped get a car. For, he drives up into the Taliban-controlled areas of Pakistan. and He wrote to us recently because we helped buy him a four-wheel drive a little while ago. And he sent me a picture of it a couple of weeks ago being dragged out of a ditch because it had a blowout and the entire thing was destroyed. It was incredible, nobody was killed. But he um, uh, uh, 
we have a little interview with him on tape. And on the interview, on the videotape, this guy appears at one point. Um, actually, a very good-looking, well-built guy. And he gives his name, and he says, I used to fight with the Taliban. He says, and I heard that this guy had come to my, my town and was talking to people, and they were becoming Christians. He says, and so he traveled from a different town all the way back to find him and kill him. And then he says, but when I met this man, he had such love for me, he had such care for me, he says that I, I didn't change him, but he changed me. And now he's laid down his weapons and he's now serving as a pastor in a church, sharing the hope that he's found in Christ with the people who are around him. We live in a world which is increasingly victimized and feels offended at everything. And we've completely forgotten how to forgive. We've completely forgotten what it is to actually be reconciled with our enemies and to find a way to love those who, even those who would come against us with violence. And we desperately again need to discover the Christ of Scripture, the God who came into this world. And when we crucified him, even though he had done nothing wrong, looked at the people in the crowd and said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And he extends forgiveness to each one of us in this room. That's what it means to become a Christian. When you become a Christian, you end up falling hopelessly in love with God because you can't believe what he's done for you. You can't believe the lengths and the extents to which he's gone to make rescue possible. And when you find forgiveness from him, it's so easy to forgive everyone else because there is nothing that anyone can do to you that will ever equal the offense that you've committed against God. And if God has committed you your offense, how much easier it is therefore for you to forgive others around you? We're in danger of seeing the world around us collapse and die. We're locked into this spiral of grievance and we're all looking for a reason to get angry with somebody else. But as we read through the scriptures again and again, God often comes to his own church and he says, guys, I need you to repent. You've forgotten why you were here. You've forgotten the reason why I've come. You've lost your love for me and you've lost your love for others. And he doesn't come with a big stick. Instead, he comes with open arms and he says, come back to me again. Let's try again. I'm willing to forgive you. And this time, take it into your hearts and live in the way I'd have you live. And I'd love to extend that invitation to each one of you. This morning, whether you're visiting here, whether you're a regular member here, I'd invite each one of you this morning to receive either afresh or maybe even for the first time the forgiveness that God offers. In a moment, one of the pastors will come up here and just wrap up this service and he will tell you uh, just how you may come up and even pray with somebody here. Please don't leave. If you're responding this morning to this, either because you need to come back to him or for the first time, please, please don't just walk out the door. Come up and just find someone and ask them to pray with you for a few moments just to seal this before the Lord and in your life. But as I wrap up and conclude this, I'd like to share this with you. Once a year in the United Kingdom, uh, the Queen addresses the nation. It's the only time that Queen Elizabeth addresses the country. It's not very long. The speech is normally only five to seven minutes long. But I'd like to just share with you some of the words that she shared the last time um, when she spoke to the nation a couple of years ago. Here's what she said. Uh, the address happens at Christmas time, by the way. So this speech goes out to the nation on Christmas Day on television. Here's what she said. He said, finding hope in adversity is one of the themes of Christmas. Jesus was born into a world full of fear. The angels came to frighten shepherds 
with hope in their voices. Fear not, they urged. We bring you tidings of great joy, which will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Although we're capable of great acts of kindness, she said, history teaches us that we sometimes need saving for even from ourselves, from our recklessness and our greed. God sent into the world a unique person, neither a philosopher nor a general, important though they are, but a savior with the power to forgive. Forgiveness lies at the heart of the Christian faith. It can heal broken families, it can restore friendship, and it can reconcile divided communities. It is in forgiveness that we really encounter the power of God's love. In the last verse of the hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem, there is a prayer. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. It is my prayer that on this Christmas day, every one of us in this nation might find room in our lives for this message, for the love of God that comes through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's the prayer I'd like to offer you this morning. And if you're in that place where you know you need to pray afresh and anew, or maybe even for the first time, Lord, you need to enter my life and my heart. You need to cast out my sin. I need this new birth you talk about and I need to know this forgiveness. If that's where you are, I'd just love to pray for you. And I'm wondering if you'll take a moment to pray with me. I'd invite you just to close your eyes for a moment. If you are doing that, do feel free to put your hand on your purse or your wallet. We live in a depraved and wicked world and you don't know who's sat next to you. (laughs) And if you know that you need to make this prayer before God today, my suggestion is there's nothing magical about this. You just open your hands before God with your eyes closed as if you're to receive a gift because that's what it is. It's a gift of forgiveness and it's a gift of something else. The way you receive any gift is you just open your hand to take it. And I'd invite you to pray with me. Father, we come before you on this early afternoon and we want to thank you, Lord, for your love for us. Lord, we thank you that we see in you a remarkable commitment Lord, for the human sheep of this world. Lord, thank you, Father, that you call each one of us by name. And you call us and not drive us, Father, with this incredible voice. Lord, we want to thank you that you came into this world and you laid down your life for us. Lord, we thank you that no one took it from you, but you laid it down at the cross and then you picked it up again in the resurrection. Lord, paying the price for what we had done wrong and making it possible to have a new life with you. And Lord, we need that new life. Lord, we need you to be born in us today. Lord, we need to experience that newness in us. Father, Lord, would you send us from this place with a hope and a desire, Lord, to love and serve you and to love and serve those around us. Lord, may people see your work and your light at at work in our hearts and realize that all of this is possible because of what you have done in us. And we pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. It's been a real delight to be with you. I hope you have a great Sunday.